Section 1 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by K. Hand. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Part 1. 1712 to 1778. Socialism and Education. Two great political writers in the 18th century, of antagonistic views, but both original and earnest, have materially affected the whole science of government and even of social life from their day to ours and in their influence really belong to the nineteenth century one was the apostle of radicalism the other of conservatism the one more than any other single man stimulated though unwittingly the french revolution the other opposed that mad outburst with equal eloquence and caused in europe a reaction from revolutionary principles while one is far better known today than the other, to the thoughtful, both are exponents and representatives of conflicting political and social questions which agitate this age. These men were Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Edmund Burke, one Swiss and the other English. Burke I have already treated of in a former volume. His name is no longer a power, but his influence endures in all the grand reforms of which he was a part, and for which his generation in England is praised while his writings remain a treasure-house of political and moral wisdom, sure to be drawn upon during every public discussion of governmental principles. Rousseau, although a writer of a hundred years ago, seems to me a fit representative of political, social, and educational ideas in the present day, because his theories are still potent, and even in this scientific age more widely diffused than ever before. Not without reason, it is true, for he embodied certain germinant ideas in a fascinating literary style. But it is hard to understand how so weak a man could have exercised such far-reaching influence. Himself a genuine and passionate lover of nature, recognizing in his principles of conduct no duties that could conflict with personal inclinations. Born in democratic and freedom-loving Switzerland, and early imbued through his reading of German and English writers with ideas of liberty, which in those conservative lands were wholesome. He distilled these ideas into charming literary creations that were eagerly read by the restless minds of France and wrought in them political frenzy. The reforms he projected grew out of his theories of the rights of man, without reference to the duties that limit those rights, and his appeal for their support to men's passions and selfish instincts and to a sentimental philosophy, in an age of irreligion and immorality, aroused a political tempest which he little contemplated. In an age so infidel and brilliant as that which preceded the French Revolution, the writings of Rousseau had a peculiar charm, and produced a great effect even on men who despised his character and ignored his mission. He engendered the Robespierres and Condorcets of the Revolution, those sentimental murderers who, under the guise of philosophy, attacked the fundamental principles of justice and destroyed the very rights which they invoked. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was born at Geneva in the year 1712, when Voltaire was first rising into notice. He belonged to the plebeian ranks, being the son of a watchmaker, was sickly, miserable, and morbid from a child, was poorly educated but a great devourer of novels, which his father, sentimental as he, read with him, poetry and gushing biographies. Although a little later he became, with impartial facility, equally delighted with the sturdy Plutarch. His nature was passionate and inconstant, his sensibilities morbidly acute, and his imagination lively. He hated all rules, precedents, and authority. 
He was lazy, listless, deceitful, and had a great craving for novelties and excitement. As he himself says, feeling everything and knowing nothing. At an early age, without money or friends, he ran away from the engraver to whom he had been apprenticed, and after various adventures was first kindly received by a Catholic priest in Savoy, then by a generous and erring woman of wealth lately converted to Catholicism, and again by the priests of a Catholic seminary in Sardinia, under whose tuition, and in order to advance his personal fortunes, he abjured the religion in which he had been brought up, and professed Catholicism. This, however, cost him no conscientious scruples, for his religious training had been of the slimmest, and principles he had none. We next see Rousseau as a footman in the service of an Italian countess, where he was mean enough to accuse a servant girl for a theft he had himself committed, thereby causing her ruin. Again employed as a footman in the service of another noble family, his extraordinary talents were detected, and he was made secretary. But all this kindness he returned with insolence, and again became a wanderer. In his isolation, he sought the protection of the Swiss lady who had before befriended him, Madame de Warrens. He began as her secretary and ended in becoming her lover. In her house he saw society and learned music. A fit of caprice induced Rousseau to throw up this situation, and then he taught music in Chambéry for a living, studied hard, read Voltaire, Descartes, Locke, Hobbes, Leibniz, and Puffendorf, and evinced an uncommon vivacity and talent for conversation, which made him a favorite in social circles. His chief labor, however, for five years was in inventing a system of musical notation, which led him to Lyon, and then, in 1741, to Paris. He was now twenty-nine years old, a visionary man, full of schemes, with crude opinions and unbounded self-conceit, but poor and unknown, a true adventurer, with many agreeable qualities, irregular habits, and not very scrupulous morals. Favored by letters of introduction to ladies of distinction, for he was a favorite with the ladies who liked his enthusiasm, freshness, elegant talk, and grand sentiments, he succeeded in getting his system of musical notation examined, although not accepted, by the French Academy, and secured an appointment as secretary in the suite of the ambassador to Venice. In this city, Rousseau remained but a short time, being disgusted with what he called official insolence, which did not properly recognize native genius. He returned to Paris as poor as when he left it, and lived in a cheap restaurant. There he made the acquaintance of his Therese, a healthy, amiable woman, but low, illiterate, unappreciative, and coarse, the author of many of his subsequent miseries. She lived with him till he died, first as his mistress and housekeeper, although later in life he married her. She was the mother of his five children, every one of whom he sent to a foundling hospital, justifying his inhumanity by those sophistries and paradoxes with which his writings abound. Even in one of his letters appealing for pity because he had never known the sweetness of a father's embrace. With extraordinary self-conceit, too, he looked upon himself all the while, in his numerous illicit loves, as a paragon of virtue, being apparently without any moral sense or perception of moral distinctions. It was not till Rousseau was thirty-nine years of age that he attracted public attention by his writings, although earlier known in literary circles, especially in that infidel Parisian coterie, where Diderot, Grimm, Dolbach, D'Alembert, David Hume, the Marquis de Mirabeau, Heveltius, and other wits shined, in which circle no genius was acknowledged and no profundity of thought was deemed possible unless allied with those pagan ideas which St. Augustine had exploded 
and Pascal had ridiculed. Even while living among these people, Rousseau had all the while a kind of sentimental religiosity which revolted at their ribald scoffing, although he never protested. He had written some fugitive pieces of music, and had attempted and failed in several slight operettas, composing both music and words, but the work which made Rousseau famous was his essay on a subject propounded in 1749 by the Academy of Dijon. Has the progress of science and the arts contributed to corrupt or to purify morals? This was a strange subject for a literary institution to propound, but one which exactly fitted the genius of Rousseau. The boldness of his paradox, for he maintained the evil effects of science and art, and the brilliancy of his style secured readers, although the essay was crude in argument and false in logic. In his confessions, he himself condemns it as the weakest of all his works, although full of force and fire, and he adds, with whatever talent a man may be born, the art of writing is not easily learned. It has been said that Rousseau got the idea of taking the off side of this question from his literary friend Diderot, and that his unexpected success with it was the secret of his lifelong career of opposition to all established institutions. This is interesting, but not very authentic. The next year, his irregular activity having been again stimulated by learning that his essay had gained the premium at Dijon, and by the fact of its great vogue as a published pamphlet, another performance fairly raised Rousseau to the pinnacle of fashion, and this was an opera which he composed, La Divine du Village, The Village Sorcerer, which was performed at Fontainebleau before the court and received with unexampled enthusiasm. His profession, so far as he had any, was that of a copyist of music, and his musical taste and facile talents had at last brought him an uncritical recognition. But Rousseau soon abandoned music for literature. In 1753, he wrote another essay for the Academy of Dijon on the Origin of the Inequality of Man, full of still more startling paradoxes than his first, in which he attempted to show, with great felicity of language, the superiority of savage life over civilization. At the age of 42, Rousseau revisited Protestant Geneva, abjured in its turn the Catholic faith, and was offered the post of librarian of the city. But he could not live out of the atmosphere of Paris, nor did he wish to remain under the shadow of Voltaire, living in his villa near the city gate of Geneva, who had but little admiration for Rousseau, and whose superior social position excited the latter's envy. Yet he professed to hate Paris with its conventionalities and fashions, and sought a quiet retreat where he could more leisurely pursue his studies and enjoy nature, which he really loved. This was provided for him by an enthusiastic friend, Madame de Epinay, in the beautiful valley of Montmorency, and called the Hermitage, situated in the grounds of her Chateau de la Chevrette. Here he lived with his wife and mother-in-law, he himself enjoying the hospitalities of the chateau besides, society of a most cultivated kind, also woods, lawns, parks, gardens, all for nothing, the luxuries of civilization, the glories of nature, and the delights of friendship combined. It was an earthly paradise given him by enthusiastic admirers of his genius and conversation. In this retreat, one of the most favored which a poor author ever had, Rousseau, ever craving some outlet for his passionate sentiments, created an ideal object of love. He wrote imaginary letters, dwelling with equal rapture on those he wrote and those he fancied he received in return, and which he read to his lady friends, after his rambles in the forests and parks, during the reunions at the supper table. Thus was born the Nouvelle Eloise, 
a novel of immense fame in which the characters are invested with every earthly attraction living in voluptuous peace yet giving vent to those passions which consume the unsatisfied soul it was the forerunner of corinne the sorrows of werther thaddeus of warsaw and all those sentimental romances which amused our grandfathers and grandmothers but which increased the prejudice of religious people against novels it was not until sir walter scott arose with his wholesome manliness that the embargo against novels was removed the life which rousseau lived at the hermitage reveries in the forest luxurious dinners and sentimental friendships led to a passionate love affair with the comtesse de Huldetot, a sister-in-law of his patroness madame de Epinay, a woman not only married but who had another lover besides the result of course was miserable jealousies piques humiliations misunderstandings and the sundering of the ties of friendship which led to the necessity of another retreat a real home the wretched man never had this was furnished still in the vicinity of montmorency by another aristocratic friend the marechal de luxembourg the fiscal agent of the prince de conde and nothing to me is stranger than that this wandering morbid irritable man without birth or fortune the father of the wildest revolutionary and democratic doctrines and always hated both by the court and the church should have found his friends and warmest admirers and patrons in the highest circles of social life it can be explained only by the singular fascination of his eloquence and by the extreme stolidity of his worshippers in appreciating his doctrines and the state of society to which his principles logically led in this second retreat rousseau had the entree to the palace of the duke of luxembourg where he read to the friends assembled at its banquets his new production emile a singular treatise on education not so faulty as his previous works but still false in many of its principles especially in regard to religion this book contained an admirable and powerful impulse away from artificiality and towards naturalist and education which has exerted an immense influence for good we shall revert to it later a few months before the publication of emile rousseau had issued the social contract the most revolutionary of all his works subversive of all precedents in politics government and the organization of society while also confounding christianity with ecclesiasticism and attacking its influence in the social order all his works obtained a wide fame before publication by reason of his habit of reading them to enthusiastic and influential friends who made them known the social contract however dangerous as it was did not when published arouse so much opposition as emile the latter book as we now see contained much that was admirable but its freedom and looseness in religious discussion called down the wrath of the clergy excited the alarm of the government and finally compelled the author to fly for his life to switzerland rousseau is now regarded as an enemy to christian doctrine even as he was a foe to the existing institutions of society in geneva his books are publicly burned henceforth his life is embittered by constant persecution he flies from canton to canton in the freest country in europe obnoxious not only for his opinions but for his habits of life he affectedly adopts the arminian dress with its big fur bonnet and long girdled caftan among the swiss peasantry he is as full of personal eccentricities as he is of intellectual crochets he becomes a sort of literary vagabond with every man's hand against him he now writes a series of essays called letters from the mountain full of bitterness and anti-christian sentiments so incensed by these writings are the country people among whom he dwells 
that he is again forced to fly. David Hume, regarded him as a mild, affectionate, and persecuted man, gives Rousseau a shelter in England. The wretched man retires to Derbyshire, and there writes his confessions, the most interesting and most dangerous of his books, showing a diseased and irritable mind, and most sophistical views on the immutable principles of both morality and religion. A victim of mistrust and jealousy, he quarrels with Hume, who learns to despair his character while pitying the sensitive sufferings of one whom he calls a man born without skin. Rousseau returns to France at age of 55. After various wanderings, he is permitted to settle in Paris, where he lives with great frugality in a single room, poorly furnished, supporting himself by again copying music, sought still in high society, yet shy, reserved, forlorn, bitter. Occasionally making new friends who are attracted by the infantine simplicity of his manners and apparent amiability, but losing them almost as soon as made by his petty jealousies and irritability, being equally indignant at neglect and intolerant of attention. Rousseau's declining health and the fear of his friends that he was on the borders of insanity led to his last retreat, offered by a munificent friend at Hermenonville, near Paris, where he died at 66 years of age in 1778, as something from poison administered by his own hand. The Revolutionary National Assembly of France in 1790 bestowed a pension of 1,500 francs on his worthless widow, who had married a stable boy soon after the death of her husband. Such was the checkered life of Rousseau. As to his character, Lord Brougham says that, Never were so much genius before united with so much weakness. The leading spring of his life was egotism. He never felt himself wrong, and the sophistries he used to justify his immoralities are both ludicrous and pitiable. His treatment of Madame de Warrens, his first benefactor, was heartless, while the abandonment of his children was infamous. He twice changed his religion without convictions, for the advancement of his fortunes. He pretended to be poor when he was independent in his circumstances. He supposed himself to be without vanity, while he was notoriously the most conceited man in France. He quarreled with all his friends, he made war on society itself, he declared himself a believer in Christianity, but denied all revelation, all miracles, all inspiration, all supernaturalism, and everything he could not reconcile with his reason. His bitterest enemies were the atheists themselves, who regarded him as a hypocrite, since he professed to believe in what he undermined. The hostility of the church was excited against him, not because he directly assailed Christianity, but because he denied all its declarations and sapped its authority. Rousseau was, however, a sentimentalist rather than a rationalist, an artist rather than a philosopher. He was not a learned man, but a bold thinker. He would root out all distinctions in society because they could not be reconciled with his sense of justice. He preached a gospel of human rights based not on Christianity, but on instinct. He was full of impracticable theories. He would have no war, no suffering, no hardship, no bondage, no fear, and even no labor, since these were evils, and according to his notions of moral government, unnecessary. But in all his grand theories he ignored the settled laws of providence, even those of that nature he so fervently worshipped, all that is decreed concerning man or woman, all that is stern and real in existence, and while he uttered such sophistries, he excited discontent with the inevitable condition of man, he loosened family ties, he relaxed wholesome restraints, he infused an intense hatred of all conditions subject to necessary toil. The life of this embittered philanthropist was as great a contradiction as were his writings. This benevolent man sends his own children to a foundling hospital. 
This independent man lives for years on the bounty of an erring woman, whom at last he exposes and deserts. This high-minded idealizer of friendship quarrels with every man who seeks to extricate him from the consequences of his own imprudence. This affectionate lover refuses a seat at his table to the woman with whom he lives and who is the mother of his children. This proud Republican accepts a pension from King George III and lives in the houses of aristocratic admirers without payment. This religious teacher rarely goes to church or respects the outward observances of the Christianity he affects. This moral theorizer, on his own confession, steals and lies and cheats. This modest innocent corrupts almost every woman who listens to his eloquence. This lofty thinker consumes his time in frivolity and senseless quarrels. This patriot makes war on the institutions of his country and even of civilized life. This humble man turns his back on everyone who will not do him reverence. Such was this precursor of revolutions, this agitator, this hypocrite, this egotist, this lying prophet, a man admired and despised, brilliant but indefinite, original but not true, acute but not wise, logical but reasoning on false premises, advancing some great truths but spoiling their legitimate effect by sophistries and falsehoods. Why then discuss the ideas and influence of so despicable a creature? Because, sophistical as they were, those ideas contained truths of tremendous germinant power, because in the rank soil of his times they produced a vast crop of bitter poisonous fruit, while in the more open, better, aerated soil of this century they have borne and have yet to bear a fruitage of universal benefit. God's ways seem mysterious. It is for men patiently to study, understand, and utilize them. Let us turn to the more definite consideration of the writings which have given this author so brilliant a fame. I omit any review of his operas in his system of musical notation as not bearing on the opinions of society. The first work, as I have said, which brought Rousseau into notice was the treatise for the Academy of Dijon as to whether the arts and sciences have contributed to corrupt or to purify morals. Rousseau followed the bent of his genius in maintaining that they have done more harm than good, and he was so fresh and original and brilliant that he gained the prize. This little work contains the germ of all his subsequent theories, especially that in which he magnifies the state of nature over civilization. An amazing paradox which, however, appealed to society when men were wearied with the very pleasures for which they lived. Rousseau's cant about the virtues engendered by ignorance, idleness, and barbarism is repulsive to every sound mind. Civilization may present greater temptations than a state of nature, but these are inseparable from any growth and can be overcome by the valorous mind. Who but a madman would sweep away civilization with its factitious and remediable evils for barbarism with its untutored impulses and animal life? Here Rousseau makes war upon society, upon all that is glorious in the advance of intellect and the growth of morality, upon the reason and aspirations of mankind. Can inexperience be a better guide than experience when it encounters crime and folly? Yet on the other hand, a plea for greater simplicity of life, a larger study of nature, and a freer enjoyment of its refreshing contrasts to the hothouse life of cities, is one of the most responsible and healthful impulses of our own day. What can be more absurd, although bold and striking, than Rousseau's essay on the origin of human inequalities? In this he pushes out the doctrine of personal liberty to its utmost logical sequence, so as to do away with government itself and with all regulation for the common good. We do not quarrel with his abstract propositions in respect to political equality, 
but his deduction struck a blow at civilization since he maintains that inequalities of human condition are the source of all political and social evils while christianity confirmed by common sense teaches that the source of social evils is in the selfish nature of man rather than in his outward condition and further if it were possible to destroy the inequalities of life they would soon again return even with the most boundless liberty here common sense is sacrificed to a captivating theory and all the experiences of the world are ignored this shows the folly of projecting any abstract theory however true to its remote and logical sequence in the attempt we are almost certain to be landed in absurdity so complicated are the relations of life especially in governmental and political science what doctrine of civil or political economy would be applicable in all ages and all countries and all conditions like the ascertained laws of science or the great and accepted truths of the bible political axioms are to be considered in their relation with other truths equally accepted or men are soon brought into a labyrinth of difficulties and the strongest intellect is perplexed and especially will this be the case when a theory under consideration is not a truth but an assumption that was the trouble with rousseau his theories disdainful of experience however logically treated became in their remotest sequence and application insulting to the human understanding because they were often not only assumptions but assumptions of what was not true although very specious and flattering to certain classes rousseau confounded the great truth of the justice of moral and political equality with the absurd and unnatural demand for social and material equality the great modern cry for equal opportunity for all is sound and christian but any attempt to guarantee individual success in using opportunity to ensure the lame and the lazy an equal rank in the race must end in confusion and distraction the evil of rousseau's crude theories or false assumptions was practically seen in the acceptance of their logical conclusions which led to anarchy murder pillage and outrageous excess the great danger attending his theories is that they are generally half-truths truth and falsehood blended his writings are sophistical it is difficult to separate the truth from the error by reason of the marvellous felicity of his language i do not underrate his genius or his style he was doubtless an original thinker and a most brilliant and artistic writer and by so much did he confuse people even by the speciousness of his logic there is nothing indefinite in what he advances he is not a poet dealing in mysticisms but a rhetorical philosopher propounding startling theories partly true and partly false which he logically enforces with matchless eloquence. End of section 1.